This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Let's pray. Father, without your Son, we are poor, but with him we are rich. I pray that you would speak to your people through your word this morning. Help us to see the gracious gift that is on offer and help us to accept it. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So I want to begin with a question this morning. Uh, It's not so much a thought experiment as I'll call it an, an imaginative exercise. And it'll make sense to those of us who are a bit older. I want you to think back to when you were 16 years old to jog your memory. Imagine um, yourself as a sophomore or a junior in high school, about 16 at that time. Try to get back into that 16-year-old mind, that 16-year-old way of looking at the world. It might be scary for some of us, but just try it. Just trust me. The question that I want to ask you this morning is this. What would your 16-year-old self think about you now? What would your 16-year-old self think about the person you've become? And I'm not just talking about the fact that we've all probably gained a little weight and lost a little hair. I'm talking more existentially. Would your 16-year-old self recognize the person that you've become? Would they be proud of you? Would they be disappointed in you? Would they be surprised by what they see? What would they be surprised about? You know, I've been thinking a lot about this very question, this imaginative exercise this past week. I've been thinking a lot about the difference between 16-year-old Kevin and 36-year-old Kevin. And the reason I've been thinking about this is because I became a Christian when I was 16. In fact, today is the 20th anniversary of my conversion. On July 25th, 2001, I became a Christian. I became a follower of Jesus. And if 16-year-old Kevin saw me today, he would think surely there's been a mistake. They've shown me the wrong 36-year-old. Never in a million years did my 16-year-old self think that I would become a Christian, let alone a pastor, let alone preaching. He would look at me and say, that person is a different person. And by God's grace, my 16-year-old self would be correct. He'd be right. I'm a different person. Now, before I move on, I want to pause and just say that I know most of us, many of us, don't have a particular day that they can point back to and say, that's the day I became a Christian. And that is 100% okay. In fact, that's great. It puts you in really great company. In fact, Father Jonathan doesn't remember a day apart from Christ. My wonderful wife doesn't remember the moment she became a Christian. She just kind of always knew God as far as she knows. And in fact, this is the prayer that I pray for my kids, for all of our kids, that they would never know a day apart from Christ. That's my prayer for them. But my story is different. I knew many days apart from Christ. I happen to remember the exact moment when the lights were flipped on for me. And so this time every year around July 25th, I spend some time giving thanks to God and reflecting on what God has done in my life. I reflect on his call on my life, the things that I love about Jesus and about his church. In our passage this morning, the Apostle Paul is reflecting on similar things. 
He's thinking back to his own conversion and his own call. His call as an apostle to preach the boundless riches of Christ to the Gentiles. And Paul is writing from prison. He has some time on his hands. And so he's thinking. And I don't think he's thinking back to when he was 16 years old. But I do think he's reflecting back on when God revealed the mystery of salvation to him. Most dramatically on the Damascus Road and then through the subsequent years where he spent reflecting and reinterpreting everything, his life, God, the scriptures, the entire world through the lens of Jesus. You see, Paul is reflecting on these things and then he's writing a letter to the Ephesians, sharing his insights so that he might encourage them. And our passage, chapter three, ties together the first two chapters of our book. In chapters one and two, we read that Paul Um, talks about how um, all the things that God has done for us in Christ. Though we were dead, God made us alive. God saved us from sin and for good works. And then we see that through Christ, God not only reconciles us to himself, he reconciles us one to another. Jews and Gentiles are formed into one new body, one new humanity through the cross. And this is the mystery that Paul is referring to. This has been God's plan all along. It was previously hidden, but has now been revealed. And Paul knows that this message changes everything, if we really get it. But it's a message that takes a little while to soak in. Paul knows that the only way that these profound truths can really shape our reality and our lived experience is through the power of the Holy Spirit and this through prayer. And so before he prays for the people that he's writing to in verses 14 to 21, he circles back and he expands on a few of the things that he had spoken about previously. Verse 8 is central to the understanding of the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning. Paul really wants us to grasp something. He really wants us to wrap our arms and our minds around the boundless riches of Christ. So we're going to spend some time looking at verses 1 through 13 in particular. And the way that I would describe this passage, this section of Scripture, is it's a treasure chest. Paul is pointing out some of the jewels that are in our treasure chest that are our inheritance in Christ. And in a moment, I'm going to pick up two of those jewels, and we're going to look at them together. But first, I want to spend some time reflecting on this amazing phrase, the boundless riches of Christ. Other translations uh, render this phrase the unsearchable riches of Christ. My personal favorite way of talking about this verse, of translating it, is the unfathomable riches of Christ. And so I want to unpack that word, unfathomable. The root of the word is fathom, and uh, in English it's both a noun and a verb. And the word fathom, it comes to us from Old English, and it originally referred to uh, the length of outstretched arms, which was about six feet, the wingspan of an average man. Over time, that measurement, the word fathom, became standardized to be six feet. Uh, and so a fathom is a unit of measurement. It's the noun. It's six feet long. And the verb to fathom means to sound out the depth of something, usually sounding out the depth of water. Metaphorically, it means to understand something, right? Our arms, we're getting our arms around it. That's what it means to fathom something. Now, by describing the riches of Christ as unfathomable, 
Paul means that we can search out the riches, but we can never get to the bottom of the treasure chest. We can never fully wrap our arms around the riches of Christ. We're always uncovering new treasures. There's always more to the goodness and the beauty and the truth of God. There's always more to see, to experience, to receive, and to love. I want to share an image with you that's helped me to grasp this reality over the past few weeks. The image is actually the one printed on the church program, and this is an icon. It's called Christ as Savior. And uh, for many of us, particularly us Western Christians, icons are kind of foreign to us, but they're very important to Eastern Christians. Icons are central to the prayer life of Eastern Christians. Icons are meant to be windows into God. You look not so much at the icon, but through the icon as a tool for prayer. And I've been using this icon, this beautiful icon, as a guide for me the past few weeks. And it's, it's a famous icon. It was painted around 600 years ago in Russia. And at some point in its history, it got lost. It got tucked away, probably to save it from destruction. But it was lost to history. Nobody knew what happened to it for quite a long time. And then in 1919, about 100 years ago, it was accidentally discovered in the floor of a shed outside of Moscow. And as you can see, it was there for quite a long time, unprotected, and it's severely damaged. All the paint around Jesus is, is worn away. The ravages of nature and time have eroded the masterpiece. Normally, if you've seen this icon before, um, it's, what we see is just a cropped image of it. We don't see the empty panel around it. But for me, seeing the whole panel has, has shaped how I've begun to imagine the unfathomable riches of Christ. This icon has served me as a kind of visual metaphor. You see, our experience of Christ is actually the opposite of what we see in the icon. The passage of time has eroded the paint on the icon, but faith reverses entropy. Through eyes of faith, time reveals new brushstroke after new brushstroke of the image of Christ. And what I mean by this is that the longer we follow Jesus, the clearer our vision of him becomes. Our vision of him is being filled out. The bare places on the icon are being painted back in as we come to know more and more of the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. In Ephesians 3, Paul is saying that we will never fully fathom the depths of God's love. We know God's love like we know infinity. We can know it truly, but we can't ever know it exhaustively. Another way of saying it is that we'll never arrive. There's always more. It is always, as C.S. Lewis puts it in the last battle, further up and further in. And so what I want to do with the rest of our time uh, this morning is to pick up two pieces of the treasure that Paul mentions in our chapter. And I want to look at them together. The first jewel is the grace of God, and the second one is the church. So I would say the greatest treasure we have in Christ is grace. It's pretty hard to argue with that. Grace is our crown jewel. It's the most, most precious gem that we have in our inheritance. It's, in fact, the jewel that unlocks access to the rest of the treasure we have in Jesus. And I think the best way to describe grace for you this morning is to talk about how I first experienced it 20 years ago. I'll talk about how I came to know the Lord. Now, what led up to my accepting God's gift of grace was not a long, drawn-out search for God. I was not uh, 
really seeking God in any meaningful way. It wasn't the results of an intellectual study of the claims of Christianity carefully weighed against those of other world religions. How I became a Christian is I encountered Jesus. 20 years ago, in large part because of uh, how non-refundable deposits work, I ended up on a bus heading to a Young Life camp. And for those of you who don't know Young Life, Young Life is a ministry uh, whose goal, whose aim is to preach the boundless riches of Christ to unchurched kids, kids who didn't grow up going to church, kids like me. I knew almost nobody on that bus. I was very much not a Christian, and as you might imagine, I was pretty uncomfortable getting onto it. And over the course of a week at a Young Life camp, uh, Lake Champion, if you're familiar, I heard the gospel of Jesus preached. And I'll summarize for you the things that I heard. I heard that God created us in love, and he created us for love. God made us to be in a relationship with him and to be his representatives on the earth. And each of us, I heard, in the same way and each of us in our own ways, turned our backs on God. We turned away from him. And the Bible calls this turning away from God sin. Sin is a fracture. It separates us from God and from one another and from God's purposes in our lives. And there's nothing that we can do to fix the break. Only God can mend it. And the gospel is that God in his love sent his son Jesus to live a sinless life and to die a sinner's death for me, for all of us, so that through faith, by trusting in Jesus, I and we could be reconciled to God and become the people that God intended us to be as his beloved children. And as I heard this story, God broke through. Everything clicked into place. Everything was making sense. I was seeing clearly for the very first time. For the first time in my life, I felt known. I felt seen, like really seen. My dreams and my hopes, my fears, all of my sin, all the wrong things that I'd ever done were seen. A a spotlight was cast onto it. And I was only 16, but I had done enough in my life at that point to be ashamed of. Sin was not a stranger to me. And I became very aware that God saw all of me. And I felt at that moment completely and utterly exposed. And at the same time, completely and utterly covered by the love of God. I felt completely vulnerable and completely accepted. The Lord saw my very worst, and he said, I died for that. I died for you. I love you. Thought I got all the cries out this week and earlier this morning, but apparently not. And Jesus said, come and follow me. That's what grace is. That's God's gift of grace. That's what he said to me 20 years ago. That's what he says to each one of you this morning. And the question is, how will you respond? What will you answer? Jesus said, I love you, Kevin, come and follow me. And to my great surprise, I did. I hardly knew whose voice it was that I was responding to, and I'm still learning his voice. The icon is still being filled in. I look back on it now, and it just doesn't make any sense. I stepped onto a bus, not a Christian, far from God, going to camp, and I stepped back on that bus, a Christian. 
And I've fallen down quite a bit, but I've never looked back. And it still just doesn't make sense. It's an amazing surprise. And the only way I know how to describe it is that I really encountered the risen Lord Jesus. It's the great surprise of my life. It changed everything. It still is. That's the treasure of grace. And if grace is the central jewel of our crown, I think it is, the church is the crown jewel in Jesus's. If you read the whole book of Ephesians, maybe that's something you could do this next week. One of the most surprising things that I think you'll see is just how important, how precious is the church to God. In verse 10 of chapter 3, Paul tells us that the church is like a trophy. It's a symbol of God's victory to the spiritual forces in the world that are at war with God. In verse 21, Paul tells us that God is to be glorified not just in Christ, which we would expect, but God is to be glorified in the church. In Ephesians 5.25, Paul tells us that Jesus loves the church and gave himself up for her. In Ephesians 2.10, we read that the church is Christ's masterpiece. And I think this is surprising, and it offers a needed corrective for us, something we need to hear. It's easy to love grace. It's easy to treasure grace. And it's easy to trash the church. It's tempting to think that we can quit the church and still stick with Jesus, but we can't. There's no such thing as a solo Christian. It's a category mistake, according to the Bible. And I think it's hard for us to understand this in, a, in our culture where being an individual and being self-sufficient are such great aspirations. But the church is a treasure, and it's a treasure because it's the only context in which we can really grow and mature as disciples of Jesus Christ. You see, to be a disciple is to be a student. It's to be a learner, to be an apprentice of Jesus. Church is less like college and more like trade school. It's meant to be less like a lecture hall and more like shop class. And of course, the church is messed up. It doesn't always get it right. We don't always get it right. But the church is designed to be a learning community where we figure out together how to be fully human, how to be people who live for love. And we cannot do this ourselves. We need one another to do this. And we see this very clearly in verse 18. Paul prays for the church, and he prays that we would have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth of Christ's love. Now, this prepositional phrase, with all the saints, is very important. It's the key to wrapping our arms around what Paul is telling us. He's not simply praying that each of us individually would comprehend these things, and we would kind of do that as individuals together. He's saying that we need one another for this mutual comprehension. We cannot comprehend these things without one another. Jesus is the infinite jewel. He's the jewel with infinite facets. You see Jesus and you know Jesus in ways that I do not. I see Jesus and I know Jesus in ways that you do not. And we need one another's experiences, one another's perspective to access the fullness of Christ. That's why the church is a treasure. And I wish I had time to explore the other jewels that Paul presents to us in this passage. God's power, God's multifaceted wisdom, the gift of the Holy Spirit where we can experience intimacy with God. I'll leave those for you to contemplate this week. 
Now, as I end, I want to do what Paul does as he wraps up this passage in Ephesians, and I want to pray for you. Paul knows that the only way that we can really fathom the unfathomable riches of Christ is through the Spirit and this through prayer. And so I want to end by praying Ephesians 3, 14 to 21 for you, and I encourage you to pray this for one another this week. Let me pray for you. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth takes its name. I pray that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you he may, he may grant that you may be strengthened in your inner being with power through the Spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith as you are being rooted and grounded in love. I pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish abundantly far more than all we can ask or imagine, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen.